All right, perfect. How are we? Good. That was pretty good. Congratulations. Y'all are getting better at that. That's good. Um, well, welcome. Good to be back here this morning. Uh, I'm actually really excited to get into uh, the John series. If you were with us the past couple of weeks, uh, we took a short two-week break uh, and talked about the spiritual disciplines. Um, we kind of focus mainly on scripture and what does it look like for us to be continually in God's word throughout this year of 2015. Uh, and then last week, uh, Bob talked about the disciplines of abstinence or of giving up something. And we talked about fasting. Um, Many of us actually in here fasted, uh, mainly that people would come to know Christ as their Savior, that God would be drawing people into relationship with Him. And for a lot of people, that was their first time fasting. And so that was just really kind of cool to see the church uh, as a whole kind of get together and um, give up something in hopes that God would uh, give something in return, mainly that His name would be glorified um, and that people would come and know His Son. And so that was really, really cool. Uh, we do hope that that continues in this year, that you continually uh, seek God in different ways that he's laid out for us to seek. Um, now we're back in John. I absolutely love the book of John, okay? Uh, it's just filled with the gospel. It's filled with uh, practical implications of how we live out the gospel in our life, and so uh, I am excited about that. Whoever foolishly scheduled for us to go through all of John chapter 7 today, though, should be rebuked. I'm actually the one that makes the teaching schedule. I just wanted to say that. But the elders affirmed it, so I kind of blame them too a little bit, all right? But um, it really is helpful to go through all of John 7 in one day, even though it's a really large chunk, because this whole chapter is kind of all tied together underneath the same theme and the same heading and the same idea and concept, okay? And so um, even though there's more than normal, uh, we still have a lot to cover today, as I normally say. There's just a lot more text, and so we're going to try to do it in a little bit of a less time. Luckily, there's no football on afterwards, so you don't you don't have to go anywhere, right? Good deal. So I can preach for two hours. That's what we're saying. All right. Um, I'm just kidding. Our few guests were like, does he do that? No, I don't. Only an hour and a half. Um, just kidding. Um, thank you again for Joey, man, for leading us. That was great. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Um, let's dive in. John chapter seven. We're not going to go anywhere else today. So you don't have to try your Rwanda skills out. All right. We'll stay in John chapter seven. Um, so find that stick in there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Um, if you physically don't own a Bible, would you please take and keep that Bible? Um, we want you to have the word of God. We want you to uh, be able to get into it whenever you wish. And so please take that one um, and take that home with you. You can also follow along on your smartphone. Uh, if you have the YouVersion app, or some people call it the Bible app, um, underneath the tab section, there's a tab called Live. Click on that, type in the Well Austin, you'll be able to follow along. There's scripture, uh, places to take notes, questions. You could do pretty much everything on there. Um, or if you don't have that app, you can actually type that right into your browser uh, and it'll pull up and you can follow along if you would prefer uh, to do that electronically. All right, um, so you ready? Good deal. Let's dive in. Um, I kind of want to lay the foundation of the sermon a little bit first before we actually dive into the text to kind of give you what we're talking about and uh, the reason that we'll be covering the chapter of a whole, okay? This whole chapter is marked with uh, belief versus unbelief and kind of the middle ground within that. And so I have three different categories that I've called different people throughout this chapter. And um, every pastor has the spiritual gift of alliteration, all right? That's like one of the qualifications to be a pastor is that you could find words that all start with 
the same letter. Uh, so we tried to do that, uh, and we marked it down into three different categories. Clear, confused, and challenge, all right? Clear, confused, and challenge. If you want to take notes, you can uh, make a little bracket, and you can place people under that category. So throughout the people, we'll see, or throughout the chapter, we'll see people regarding Jesus in one of these three ways. Either they're clear on who he is, they, like, they believe he's the Messiah, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they're very, very clear about that, and they make clear uh, professions of faith. They're confused, right? They're not really sure. They're trying to figure out, is he a good man? Is he a prophet? What's going on here? Or they challenge. So it's not just that they uh, reject and they don't believe, but they actually challenge Jesus's uh, authority. They challenge his claims to uh, being the Messiah, and they try to reject that very, very uh, passionately. And so we're going to look at several characters and then ask, what does that mean for us? right? What is it? How does this relate to us? How uh, do we identify with some of these people? What are ways that we are like them? And so that's kind of the direction that we're going, all right? So John chapter 7, we are going to pick it up starting right in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one who, or, okay, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay, so his brothers, Jesus' brothers, are clearly in the challenge category, right? They're clearly the people that are challenged. Verse 5 says, even they did not believe in Jesus, right? Um, for those of you wondering, Jesus is actually entering his third year of ministry here, okay? And so the, a lot of people have had time to try to figure out who Jesus is, right? Like this isn't fresh off the scene, Jesus. We're just kind of jumping into it. Many people have heard his teachings. They've seen his miracles, including his brothers, right? His brothers have gotten to kind of see these things. And so many, many people have heard about Jesus, yet his brothers still, the condition of their heart is that they don't believe, right? And these are Jesus's half-brothers. So Mary and Joseph had other kids afterwards, and these are his half-brothers that are speaking this here, right? And so they they don't believe Jesus in their heart. They don't really fully know that he is actually Lord. So they're not trying to get Jesus to be made much of because they believe in him, right? Like they're not like, hey, go do these works because we really want people to see that you're the Lord, right? That's not why they're saying saying this, the condition of their hearts are, they don't believe, you know, so they just want to see some cool magic tricks, you know, some, some, some interesting things. Actually, in their tone, you can even read that, particularly in the Greek. It doesn't translate as well into the English, but you can read that they're kind of belittling Jesus. They're mocking him a little bit, like, hey, if you're truly who you say you are, why don't you go do this, buddy? right? That's kind of, how about you go ahead and, and make yourself known, right? Nobody's kind of hides in secret if they're really the Messiah. And so they're kind of mocking him, challenging Jesus's authority, right? So they're in the disbelief and the challenge uh, section. And so many of us actually experience that when we come and know Jesus, right? Like many of us in here, I know, did not grow up in the church, did not have family who was really oriented around the gospel. And so we profess faith in Christ. And then people that were closest to us, like the ones that should be excited or the ones that should be encouraging, kind of mocked us, 
right? Maybe they belittled you. Maybe they said really snide things, you know, nothing too uh, upfront. Maybe you didn't get persecuted per se, but they said little things to you and tried to uh, belittle your faith and try to discourage you, right? I want to encourage you that Jesus can very, very well relate with you, right? I know many of you in here, we've had that conversation where people have literally called you stupid for following Christ, or they've, they've really challenged what, who would believe that, who in their right mind, right? I want to encourage you, Jesus knows how that feels because his very own brothers, the people who were supposed to be some of the closest people to him, actually were rejecting Jesus. They were actually belittling and mocking him, right? So if you felt that from people, maybe friends, maybe family members, know that you're not alone, right? You can go to our high priest who's able to sympathize with us in the same type of ways because he himself has gone through this, right? Jesus can relate. Now, here's something interesting about this whole section here, all right? Jesus' brothers were very, very close to Jesus, right? Both, both in physical proximity and in psychological proximity. You know what I mean? Like physically, they were clearly close because they're talking with him, right? It's a personal conversation. This isn't like over email chat or something, right? Like they're having a conversation. But even psychologically, they're brothers, so they grew up together. Emotionally, they've experienced some of the same things, right? They have, they've been around the same areas. Like there was at least some point in time where all of them were probably in the house together. And so they're very, very close to Jesus in proximity. If you have siblings, you know how close you are. Even if you don't really like your siblings, you may have fought and argued and bickered, but you know there's still some weird special bond between siblings that gives you a close proximity to them, right? Look at how ironic verse eight is then compared to that thought. Look at, how, look at verse 8 again. Look at how ironic that is. They go to the feast. Why? Because they're trying to be spiritual. Right? They're going to the feast because they're trying to be spiritual. They're trying to be religious. And they're actually missing what the feast is supposed to be pointing to, which is Jesus. Jesus is standing right in front of them and they leave the person who can actually save them from their sins and go off and try to be religious. They exit out of Jesus' presence, right? How ironic is that? Because the people who are closest to Jesus actually leave his very presence. They, out of all people, should recognize and understand. But they move into the challenge category. They try to reject that, right? And so they're in their attempt to do the right thing, in their attempt to uh, perform the right acts, they actually completely miss the point. They completely miss the point. They have salvation standing right in front of them, and instead they try to be religious. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Proximity doesn't automatically equal faith, okay? Proximity to Jesus, to the Bible, to the gospel does not automatically equal faith, all right? Just because you're close doesn't mean that you'll be clear about who he is. Many people grew up in religious households, right? They, 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 they heard different truths about Jesus on a continual basis, right? Maybe some of you, you come to church on a regular basis, you know, you're here frequently, you, you come and you, you hear the word. Maybe even some people will pray and maybe even read the Bible a little bit, right? But proximity does not automatically equal clarity. It does not automatically equal faith. There needs to be the next step of totally trusting in who Jesus is right? There needs to be the next step of faith is what we call it. And so uh, how many of you, just out, of, just out of curiosity, grew up in a religious household, but you did not accept Christ until at least a little bit later? Middle school, high school, look at this. That's a lot, right? Maybe 25% of the room or so. That's a good portion, right? I grew up in a type of household like that as well. And so it was a Christian house. You had thoughts about Jesus, but you were missing Jesus in the process. You saw religion instead of Christ, right? That's very, very easy to do. 
And so we have to be careful of that because it's easy for our hearts to kind of drift off toward that, right? It's easy for us to uh, begin to uh, try to do the right things rather than see the gospel standing right in front of us. So they went up to the feast, which besides the Passover was uh, the most important Jewish feast, according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. Uh, they said that this is one of the most important feasts, right? This is the one where they would really focus on, uh, on, on salvation. They'd really focus on God's deliverance, all right? So it was crucial. What they would do is they would go up to Jerusalem and uh, they would live in tents or they would live in booths for a week. And what that was supposed to be representing was their time in the Exodus back in uh, uh, Exodus, the book of Exodus, right? I was like, what is this called? Exodus. <laughs> um, back during that time, right? And as God carried them out of Egypt and was going to take them into the promised land, there was a 40-year gap. And in that 40-year gap, they literally lived in tents. And what it was showing was God will provide salvation for us. Keep that in the back of your head. All right, that's what they're literally trying to celebrate during this feast. God will provide deliverance. He will bring us into the promised land. He will provide salvation for us. That's what this feast was representing. So they would go to Jerusalem. They would live in tents for seven days. And it was supposed to be a very, very joyous and very festive uh, uh, festival, right? Like it wasn't one of mourning. It wasn't one of deep reflection. It was supposed to be like partying and having a lot of fun. All right, and so we'll get to why that's important in a second, but hold on to that, okay? Uh, now, there was something I was wrestling um, over whether I should say or not, particularly for our type A people in here. Um, for several reasons, I actually decided not to, though, all right? Um, but in verse 8, I, I, I'll, I'll kind of give a teaser just a little bit because I want to be honest to the text, okay? But to explain this would take like 20 minutes, and so that's why I'm not doing that. But in verse 8, Jesus says he's not going up to the feast. And then in verse 10, what does he do? Goes to the feast. Did that bother anyone? Oh, one person, all right, two people, okay. We can be honest, it's okay to be bothered with scripture, all right? It was like five or six kind of sheepish hands, okay? That bothered me, all right? When I was reading this, I mean, however many times I've read John, if I've, I don't know how many times I've read it, however many times I've read it, I've looked at that and gone, what in the world is going on, right? Because either scripture's contradicting itself, okay, or Jesus is lying, making him not the Messiah because the Messiah is perfect, Right? And so what's going on here? Um, and Jesus isn't lying. And I finally figured it out this week after like two hours of sitting there and trying to figure out and reading commentaries and plowing through the book. It was, I felt like, like salvation had come upon me. I was like, I got, I figured it out, you know, and I was very excited. Um, but once again, it takes a long time to explain. However, if you want to know what's going on there, please come talk to me. You got to set aside at least 15 minutes, all right? And I would love to discuss that. Jesus is not lying though. And the reason why I did want to bring that up and maybe even create a little bit of, of interest in your heart is because I don't want you to be confused while we're looking at people who are confused and clear about Jesus, right? I don't want us to be confused. Like, wait a minute, is this really, right? The, no, there's a clear answer, and it's actually very, very clear in the text, right? You'll be able to see it. It doesn't take, like, some super theologian to see it. You'll be able to see it, right? It just takes a little bit of time. I was actually hanging out with Chris when I was figuring it out, and we hung out, and then we worked together. He was working. I was working on the sermon. And for, like, two hours, I was trying to figure it out. We were at Central Market. I went downstairs to get an apple, and as I was grabbing the apple, I was like, I got it. And I said that out loud, and I looked around, and one person was looking at me a little bit weird. And then I walked away, and I got a muffin instead of an apple because I, like, celebrated that I got 
got it, all right? I felt like really, really good. So I told him, he was like, that makes sense, that's cool. I was like, cool, bro, I've been trying to figure this out for like five years, you know? But anyway, I love to chat about it. Jesus is perfect, he really is. He's not lying here or even deceiving his brothers, all right? But the, once again, the explanation would be a little bit long. If you wanna search it out on yourself, I would encourage you, go do that. It's okay to ask questions of scripture and then wrestle with those questions, it really is, all right? Let's keep reading, verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. All right. So here we have a few people that we're going to place in the categories, right? The sum in verse 12 can either be in the clear or the confused section. We're not 100% sure because we don't know if they're saying he's a good man, like, oh, he's just a good man, but not the Savior. Or if they're saying like, no, no, this is a good guy. We're following after him. Doesn't give us clarity, but we see they're at least not in the challenging phase, right? And and then the others there uh, clearly are, um, they're the ones that don't believe in Jesus. And so there they are, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And so Jesus here is attesting to himself that he is in fact God. That's what he's saying. Me and God are equal. I am in fact God. I can speak on my authority, and I'm submitted to the Father because me and him are one, okay? If you missed our last series, we covered this thoroughly because this was Jesus's whole point in chapter five. So in chapter five, he said 11 different times, God and I are equal, right? If you're equal with God, that makes you God, right? Who in here is equal with God? Don't raise your hand, you'll get struck down, all right? Nobody in here is it, why? Because we are not God. But Jesus is saying, me and God are equal. Then in the latter half of chapter five, he brings up six different witnesses or, or five different witnesses to attest to that truth. He says, the father attests to it. John the Baptist said this. Scripture says this. Moses said this. My works say this. So over and over and over, Jesus is saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. Right? So he's stating the same case again here. Once again, Jesus wants us to be clear about who he is. He doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want us to think, oh, I think he's a good man. He wants us to know, no, Jesus is God. And so he says that over and over and over again. And so if you missed that, you can find those sermons online. But Jesus is very, very clear throughout John. He believes that he's God and wants others to believe that same thing. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Wrong answer to give to Jesus, by the way, right? You have a demon. This is always never a good, you can be like, I don't know. You have a demon's pretty aggressive, all right? Um, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? 
do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, so we can place the crowd here in the challenge section, right? Whenever you tell Jesus you have a demon, you don't believe that he's God, all right? So they're challenging Jesus's authority, right? Now, Jesus actually sets up a very interesting dilemma for the people here, does he not? He sets up a very, very interesting dilemma. They were mad because a couple chapters ago, which we covered before, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were mad at that. Why? Because the Sabbath was supposed to be kept holy and you were supposed to not do any work on the Sabbath. And so they were very, very angry. They said, Jesus, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the Sabbath. You're doing a work on the Sabbath, right? And so they were mad at that. Jesus tells them, though, he isn't breaking the law, but he's fulfilling a more important law, is what he's saying. Then he sets them up with a dilemma. Circumcision, he says, has to happen on the eighth day, according to the Old Testament, which is true. In the Old Testament, God said, circumcise the boy on the eighth day. So if the eighth day happens to fall on the Sabbath, Jesus says, then you circumcise them, right? And so therefore, you must be what? Breaking the law? No, you know better because you know that this is a greater work that you're doing that supersedes that law at the moment. Why? You can only circumcise on the eighth day once, right? Unless you have some time machine, you can't be the eighth day old over and over and over again, right? But the Sabbath, you can continue to keep, right? Jesus says here that this is a greater work that he's doing because circumcision, while it has a little bit of a physical uh, uh, benefit, right, and it sets a little bit of spiritual set-apartness, Jesus says, I came and I made a whole man's body well. Circumcision just does a little bit, but I made a whole man's body well. And circumcision is an initiation into spirituality, but I actually made a whole man's soul well too. And so while circumcision does a little bit, this healing that I did does a lot of bit, right? And so if you don't break the law on the Sabbath, then I must not be breaking the law either, right? And so he sets them up and, you know, they have to decide, are they all lawbreakers too? They don't want to be that. So they recognize, but then he sets them up with an even uh, greater dilemma, right? Because he says, look, I made this man's body well. I'm the one that's kind of healing him. I'm the one that's trying to make his soul well, and y'all are tripping, That's what ghetto Jesus said, all right? (laughs) Jewish Jesus said, yet you seek to kill me, okay? Now, what is he saying here, okay? Think about it. There would be like me uh, going down I-35, speeding at 100 miles per hour. I'm breaking the law, right? But pretend that uh, the officer pulled me over and he saw that in the back seat was a man that was dying, all right? And I told him, I didn't kill him, all right? I'm driving him to the hospital, okay? And that's why I'm speeding, right? That officer most likely would not write me a ticket. Now in Austin, the police officers are kind of mean sometimes, so he may still find a way to write me a ticket. But normally speaking, he would actually probably try to help. He may take the man and put him in his car because he can go even faster than I can and has lights to warn people and stuff. He would not say that I was breaking the law. Why? Because I'm fulfilling a more important duty at that moment. That's what Jesus is setting them up with the dilemma, right? And so what's Jesus' point here? Y'all are crazy. Why? Because I'm trying to point people to the most important thing, salvation, and you keep drawing back to these religious duties and you're completely missing the point. Just like his brothers, completely missing salvation to go be religious, so the crowd is here, completely missing salvation because they're trying to stick to this point, right? What are they not fully doing? They're not, they're, they're, they're not fully following Christ. And then he sets them up with something interesting. He says, you're actually the bigger lawbreakers because you're seeking to kill me. And you know what the law says? Do not murder, <laughs> right? That's how they say, you're crazy. <laughs> you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? But we know that all throughout, matter of fact, a couple of verses later, which we're about to read, everybody recognized that they're supposed to kill him. They said, Jesus is here and they're not trying to kill him. What's going on? 
right? Even the, the rest of the people know they're trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus says, look, you're trying to set up these religious barriers. You're trying to trap me in and you're missing the whole point and you're a lawbreaker yourself. I'm not breaking the law, but you are because you're trying to murder me. Right? And so he sets them up into need. Murder is forbidden, right? But he's doing a greater work, okay? And can't we do this at times too? Aren't we just like the crowd at times? It's easy to separate ourselves from the story, but draw yourself back in and think about it, right? We try to follow the rules of Christianity. We try to follow the correct structure and principles, yet in doing so, we miss the greater rule of love, right? Loving one another and loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, laying ourselves down, we miss that so that we could try to follow a certain rule. Right? I mean, am I the only one that does that? I mean, come on, right? We're in church. You could be honest. It's easy to do that, isn't it? It's easy to do that. I can go on for three sermons about this, right? But I won't, okay? But I want you to think about this. I want you, maybe some of you even need to answer, write this question down. Are you governed by love? Love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. Or are you governed by law and self-righteousness? Okay? Let me say that again. Are you governed by love? Love God and love others? Or are you governed by the law and self-righteousness? Jesus says, I come to set you free. Free to what? Love others, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's fulfilling the ultimate law. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love one another as yourselves. He's fulfilling that. Why? Because that's how he's acting. He's moving in that. And some of us get caught in the religiosity of things, and we miss salvation in the process, just like the crowd. And so in our desire to keep rules, we actually shun other people away from the gospel. How dare we? How dare we, right? God longs for people to know him. And that's what Christ is doing throughout this. He's longing for people to know who he is. And so let us not be like the crowd here either. Let us be governed by love, right? Once again, uh, we see several categories of the people here, but let's keep reading. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? There you go. Even these people knew that they're seeking to kill him, right? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. All right, so several people here. The some people in verse 25 through 27 are confused very clearly, right? Um, Let's keep reading. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. For he who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I came from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Right? So I jumped ahead a little bit, but the some people, 25 to 27, are confused, right? The they in verse 30 clearly don't believe. They're seeking to kill this man to arrest him. But the many people in verse 31 do believe, right? They're saying this, this has got to be the Christ. This has got to be the Christ, right? There's a ton in this section, but I want to point out one thing in particular. Why is Jesus telling them these things? Why is it that Jesus is having these conversations with these people in the first place? Okay, why? Look at verse 28. It gives us the key there, right? He said, so, so that. Because Jesus wanted them to believe. That's why Jesus is engaging in this conversation in the first place, because Jesus actually wanted them to believe that he was the son of God, that he was able to save them from their sins, right? So Jesus is speaking all of this truth because he longs to move everyone from confused and challenge into clarity, 
right? It's very easy for us to read Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and the other people that that he contends with and see them as like, these people don't like Jesus and then Jesus just kind of stumps them and he's like, ha, 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 right? Isn't it easy to see Jesus like that? The only reason Jesus is engaging in this conversation is because he longs for them to actually be saved in the first place. The very people that are gonna end up crucifying him, Jesus gives himself to over and over and over again. He does not have to have this conversation with them. He could have went to the people who really wanted to believe, sit down, teach them, but he's engaging with everybody, trying to get even these people who are trying to kill him to believe. He said, so that you would believe, so that you would know that I am the son of God, right? Jesus is engaging with them, trying to draw them in repentance. Whenever you see Christ engaging with people, and it may be some hard sayings, don't think he's being condemning or harsh. He's not. He's being unbelievably gracious, Because he's trying to pull them into salvation, even though they've seen time and time and time again that he has proven himself. He keeps trying to draw them in, draw them in, draw them in. Jesus longs for them to be saved. Not just the broken people, which we'll read about next week, but even these religiously uptight, upright people. He's trying to break them down and show them, you need me too. And he's trying to draw them into repentance right? He wants them to believe, okay? We saw that a few weeks ago when Jesus was hammering the Pharisees, right? He's not at war with them, okay? And so Jesus is longing for people to know who he is, to give them clarity, amen? So they were confused. They thought they knew where Jesus came from. They thought they were like, isn't this guy from Bethlehem? Don't we know? And Jesus then says, you don't know where I come from, right? I'm from heaven, and none of you know what that's like, he says. So you think you know where, you, where I come from, but you actually have no idea, but I'm trying to draw you back up there with me, right? You think you know where I come from, but I'm longing for you to actually know the Father, to come back with me to where I'm from in the first place. Jesus is trying to draw them into repentance. Keep reading, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, "Uh, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go where we will not find him? Does he intend to go into the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What What does he mean by saying you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Okay, so we see the haters come into the picture right? These dudes, the Pharisees, are the haters, right? They're always hating on Jesus. Like, you know the people in the, uh, like, the YouTube comments or, like, the, the blog or articles that are always hating, right? Like, if I read some of them right now, I'd be fired as a pastor because they're so mean on, on those comment boards, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Sometimes you don't even read the article. You just scroll down to see who's hating, right? <laughs> um, that's these dudes. That's the Pharisees, right? They're always coming in. They got to say something. They got to provoke some sort of hate, okay? So the Pharisees come in, they're kind of hating on Jesus, and Jesus, what is he doing? Challenging them, trying to destroy them? No, he's saying, I'm going to where you want to be, right? The same thing that he says to the crowd, he's saying to the Pharisees, where I'm going, you cannot come. Why? Because you don't believe in me. You don't believe in me, right? But Jesus is trying to help them believe in him. The Pharisees are obviously in the challenge category, um, if you were going to put them somewhere, right? Keep reading, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Underline that, circle that if you're writing in your Bible. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as uh, yet the Spirit had not 
been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, okay? Jesus gives them a great promise and he lays out the gospel about what it means to believe or what it means to be clear about who Jesus is, okay? Can we spend a little bit of time on that, breaking that down some, okay? This is where the importance of the Jewish festival kind of comes back into the picture. Who is the gospel for? Verse 37. Who? Anyone. Anyone, right? Who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Right? But you don't know my past. Anyone. Right? But you don't realize all the bad things that I've done. You don't, you don't. Anyone, Jesus says. Anyone who thirsts, right? But I have these issues. Anyone. But I don't look like the other Christians that are here. Anyone. Right? Jesus says that the gospel is for anyone, whoever, right, would come to me, okay? That's an important truth here. But what is the condition? What do you have to do to come to Jesus? Anyone who what? Thirst, Jesus said, right? Thirst inquires a spiritual need, right? Like you need something. You recognize that, okay? So unless a person recognizes that he is thirsty or unless a person recognizes that he's a sinner, right? He is not perfect. He has done things to offend God. Unless he recognizes that, that he's actually in need, then he'll never come to Jesus in the first place. But Jesus says, once you realize you're thirsty, once you realize that there's something missing, once you realize that you need to be made whole, right? You can come to me. Anyone can, and I can fill you, right? Once they realize that I'm in need, they come to Jesus and they begin to be filled with living water, it says, with living water, water gushing like a raging river out of our souls, satisfying and filling us up forever and ever and ever. You can come to me and I can give you that, Jesus says, right? And notice that Jesus invites us to him. How beautiful is that? Not to a church, not to a preacher, not to baptism or not to communion or the Lord's Supper, not to a certain type of work, but to come to him, to come to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the one that can fill you up, right? I am the one that gives you everlasting water that satisfies your soul forever and ever and ever. You need nothing else. While all those things are very good because they point to Jesus, Jesus is the all-satisfying one, amen? Jesus is the one who can fill us up, right? Jesus says, come to me, right? Come to me. And he says this time and time and time again in the gospel. You're broken, you're dirty, you're messed up, come to me. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you feel stress and pressure and anxiety, come to me. I can give you rest. He says it over and over again throughout the gospel message. Come to me, right? Why is this good news? Because Jesus wants you. Hello? Speak that into your souls for a second. The perfect, sinless son of God wants you. Come to me, he says, and I can give you water that will satisfy you forever and ever and ever, right? Come to me. If you're thirsty, if you want life, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. The water will flow out of you. You'll be full. And not just you, by the way, but everyone around you will be helped. Everyone around you can receive that water as well. They feel the spring of life coming out of you because that's actually what he's alluding to throughout the Old Testament. What happened was is the Jews were going, they were in the wilderness, okay, and they got really thirsty. And they said, God, did you bring us out here to die? Is that why you brought us out of Egypt? In Egypt, we had water and food. Did you bring us out here to die? And God says, I didn't bring you out here to die. Matter of fact, go strike the rock and out of the rock will flow what? Rivers of living water. And you can, thir- or you can drink as much as you want and you will be satisfied. 
And they went and they struck the rock and boom, out of it. Now this is what actually the festival was pointing to. What the priests would do is they would take some water and they would take it in a basin and they would pour it out and it would represent when that rock poured out water. Jesus says, I am that rock, (laughs) right? I am the one that was struck like that. You can come to me and be forever full. You could be forever satisfied, right? This is such a beautiful promise. What they were doing was supposed to be pointing them to the Messiah. Hey, just like that rock offered us some some, uh, spiritual thirst, right? The Messiah will come one day and satisfy forever. And Jesus says, hey, that's me. And when did he say it, according to this passage? On the last day of the feast, when they were supposed to do their greatest act of remembrance. He stood up and yelled out, come to me, I am that rock, right? Jesus can satisfy. Come to the Lord if you're thirsty. Let's finish this uh, section. Verse 41, we're gonna read the rest of this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was born? So there was a division amongst the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Look at that question because watch what's about to happen. But this crowd does not believe, or I'm sorry, but this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, who was what? A Pharisee, all right, who had gone before him and who was one of them, said to them, does not our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning from what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Right, they're just kind of trying to dog this dude, tear him down. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I'll just give you a really quick insight. These dudes, their emotions are actually driving them by now. Jonah was from Galilee. They know that. They're Pharisees. They're just driven by emotion now, trying to reject Christ. Not just, I don't believe, but they're challenging his messianic uh, promise about himself, right? And so we see a bunch of people here. Um, You can throw them all up on the screen. Actually, there are many people that's given through this text. Okay, but I wanna point out one person in particular. All right, Nicodemus. Remember our boy, Nick, all right? Remember him in John chapter three, okay? Uh, He goes to Jesus at night, asks a bunch of questions. And then in John three, where would you put Nicodemus? Clearly in the confused or maybe even challenged section, right? Jesus says, hey, if you wanna receive life, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how do I go back in my mother's womb? And this doesn't make any sense, right? And Jesus is like, you don't get it. You're seeking the physical, you're missing the spiritual. And Jesus is pretty direct with him, right? Now all of a sudden, Nicodemus is very clearly not in the challenge category. He's in the at least confused, maybe even moving into the clear category. Matter of fact, this isn't the last time we'll see Nicodemus because when our Lord dies, Nicodemus goes and helps bury him. Probably showing a little bit of what? Belief right? I would find no, I would not be shocked at all to get to heaven and be like, Nick, what's up, man? <laughs> right? He'd be like, why'd you call me Nick in church? My name's Nicodemus, right? But Nicodemus seems to be, it looks like moving from death into life. Why? That's what Jesus' goal is for him. That's why he went in John 3 in the first place. Jesus was at night probably praying, which is what he's usually doing. Nicodemus comes. Jesus could have been like, I have other business to take care of. But he tries to help him see, you need to think about this in different perspective. And he helps Nicodemus begin to move from a uh, darkness into light, from death into, into life, 
right? He's trying to help Nicodemus slide along that category. Nicodemus seems to be moving, right? Because he's defending Jesus at a pretty controversial time to defend him, right? Not the best time to kind of stand up for somebody that, you know, everybody else is trying to kill, right? And so listen, you may have been coming to church for months, okay? Uh, And you're still sort of kind of confused. That's great. It's not great that you're confused, all right? We'd want to move into clarity. What I'm saying is that's great you're coming to church, right? Keep coming, because we see Nicodemus doing this, don't we? All you're doing is you're being like Nicodemus. That's great. That's a really, really, really good thing. You know how long it took me to, uh, to inspect the sayings of Christ before I actually chose to believe in him? It took me a while, right? And so for some of you, you've been wrestling. You've been kind of trying to figure out. That's a good, good, good thing. Jesus is trying to, in his love, in his grace for you, move you from confused where, where, where Nicodemus was. Is he the Christ? Is he not the Christ? I'm not really sure. Into clarity, yes, this is the son of God right? We see this very clearly in Nicodemus' life, and this is many of ours, right? It's okay to not have all the answers. Keep seeking. Keep seeking, right? There's this big lie that you have to have all the answers. You have to have everything put together. I don't, and I'm the pastor, right? Like, you do not have to have everything put together. Keep trying to figure out who Jesus is. He'll reveal himself to you. I'm confident of that because he's real and he's God, and he wants you to know him, right? Now, we've said all that to land at this question, okay? In another passage in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, the, 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 Jesus goes to the disciples and he says, hey, like, what are people saying about me? The disciples say, well, some people say that you're like Moses reincarnate, right? Some people say you're Elijah, actually the prophet. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say, and they're saying all these things, some people say you're the Christ. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ, the son of God, right? That's the same question that this text is asking us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Okay, ask yourself that. Who do you say that Jesus is? Okay, are you clear about Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior for our souls? Are you clear about him being the God-man who can satisfy everything you so desperately long for? Jesus is the answer for that. He is the living water that your soul longs for. Are you clear about that, right? Because we can say with our mouth, this is the Christ, by the way, but not fully believe that in our hearts, right? I grew up in um, a household that was like the one we recognized, right? That it was kind of religious, but I didn't really know Christ, okay? My dad actually used to tour with uh, DC Talk. Anybody, for the few people that smiled, that means you've been a Christian for more than 15 years, all right? That's what that means right there, okay? Some of you are like, who is that? Don't worry, all right? It's 90s, you're not missing out anymore, all right? But um, they were the big thing, all right? I know, I know. They were the big thing, all right? And my dad used to tour with them before they got really, really big. He was their touring DJ. And I would actually actually opened up shows for DC Talk. You know, I'm just kidding. Um, I was like really, really small, right? Three, four years old. And what my dad and my mom would have me do is they would have me sit down and memorize scripture, okay? Now, when I say memorize scripture, I don't mean like John 3.16, I'm done, right? They would get me up and I start quoting John 3.16 as a little kid, for God so loved the world. You know, they can't really talk, right? And I'm sitting here, I'm trying, and I'm like, oh, that's so cute. And I'd go to 17 and then 18, and they would have me memorize chapters and huge sections of scripture, right? Matter of fact, when I got saved, I still remember James 1 because I had memorized it as a kid, (laughs) right? Like the whole chapter, okay? So I was ingrained into religiosity a little bit, right? But my mom slowly kind of stopped pursuing Christ and turned a little bit into moralism, right? Turned a little bit into works. And my dad was very hypocritical when I was growing up, abusive physically and emotionally, would come home drunk or high, divorced my mom. I didn't see him for several years, right? I was close to Christ, but I didn't really know who he was, 
So I would have said the right answer. Who do you say Jesus is? I would just be like, uh, he's, he's Jesus. He's the Lord. He's, he's the Savior. But I didn't know that in my heart, right? My dad was, tw- or when I was 12, my dad came back into my life and he started sharing with me the gospel. And for the next three and a half years, it's a pretty long time, right? I'm trying to study the claims of Jesus. Is he really real? Is this, is this really the son of God? And it took me a long time in close proximity to figure out that he actually was God, Right? And then finally surrendered my life and gave my life over to him, okay? Some of us are there, right? You're trying to figure this out. Your friend invited you at first. You're like, ah, or you felt the urge to come to church. Don't think that's a mistake. I think that the Lord in his grace is calling you to himself, wanting you to see who he truly is, wanting to satisfy your soul. Because God doesn't want you to be miserable or he wants to give you all of life, right? He wants to give you life. And he's trying to help us see how it is that we can grasp that, how it is that we attain life, okay? And so some of you, that's where you're at. Jesus is revealing more and more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Maybe clarity is forming. Maybe the fog is fading a little bit and you're starting to see more and more, right? I can almost cry right now thinking about the beauty of somebody coming to know Jesus. That is such a great thing. If that's you, I pray the Lord keeps showing himself to you. I pray that he keeps showing himself to you that he is so beautiful and so good because I promise he can satisfy forever. I promise, I promise. Jesus is all satisfying. He truly is. And I hope that he's revealing that about himself to some of you, right? For some of you, you wanna only challenge Jesus. I would actually encourage you to try to move into the confused category, all right? Try to move into the, is he really? Because think about the works of Jesus. Matter of fact, I hope if you're in the challenge category that you'd move into where verse 31 is, right? Look at verse 31 again. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I hope that that's what you're able to ask. Has anybody ever done more signs than this man has done? Right? Like we want to live forever. Do you know the only person that's ever hopped up out of the grave? Jesus. Right? I hope that that begins to get you to question, is this man really God? Because there's only one person who can prove that he can give everlasting life. That's Jesus. Right? Question, has anybody ever done more than Jesus? I hope you move into that, okay? And then Christians, for us too, for those of us who are in the clear section, we're like, I know Jesus is God. Do we really live like that with our lives, right? Do we live like Jesus is all satisfying or will that marriage that we want finally satisfy us? And that's how we live, right? We're clear about his, his, his ability to save, but we think these other things will actually fully satisfy us. Now realizing that Christ is the fully satisfier and all these other things are good things that helps point and encourage our relationship with him. The job, the little bit of extra cash that you need, if I only had, then I would be satisfied. Whatever that is, that question, right? I would encourage you, I think you're living in a little bit of confusion there. Jesus is the living water that can fully satisfy you forever. That's where I want you to put your hope. That's where I want you to put your trust. That's where I want you to find your joy, right? Jesus is truly God and he loves you and he longs for you to know him. I love you guys very, very much. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for being the God who is ever satisfying. I confess, God, that I don't always live like that. 
God, sometimes I think, oh, if the church would do this, then I'd be satisfied. Or, or if, if, if Micaiah this, then, or if whatever it may be. And it's so easy to slide other things into that category. God, would you help us remove those things and become clear, you are living water. You are what satisfies the thirst that we feel so deeply. God, I pray that 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 would be clear to us, that we would be fully clear that you are God and that we would fall in love with that man, you, Jesus. We would fall in love with the work that you've done. We would fall in love with your character and cling desperately to the gospel, God. Help us to cling with everything that we have. God, I also pray for people in here who, who, who may not fully know you as Lord yet, Jesus. They don't, they don't know you fully as Savior. God, I pray even right now, even at this very moment, Holy Spirit, you'd be stirring up something in their heart, God. I pray they would have a desire to actually come into the, 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 the kingdom of God. But they would believe in you, Jesus. They would see that you are the all-satisfying one. God, no words can do that. My words fail miserably at that. Only you can do that through your spirit, God. And so do that in our hearts, God. Help us to to see that you are truly Lord, God. I pray even today that people would confess and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and follow you, Jesus. See what it means to be filled up with living water. God, it's hard sometimes following you. It's so easy to to get led astray. Even right now, would you help reshift us and and realign us to where we begin to follow you with everything that we have again, Christ? God, I love you. I thank you for these people, God. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who encourage me in my faith, God, who remind me to chase after you, Jesus. Would we be able to continually do that for one another? I pray this in your beautiful and your precious name, Christ. Amen. Amen.